First Chronicles chapter 21. If you want to join me there as we continue our journey through the book of Chronicles together. Recently, we've been looking at the life of King David and some of the, the battles that he has been uh, accomplishing, some of the great victories the Lord has given to him. But uh, David also, as we know, had a number of uh, pre-tremendous defeats in his life as well and certainly chapter 21 of Chronicles records another one of those occasions uh, where David uh, experiences uh, a defeat in his life a difficulty uh, with his own flesh with his sin nature and you know in some ways David is a great encouragement men like a David men like a Peter because you know here the word of God just so honest with us God could have tried to clean things up and cover things up and showed us these great spiritual heroes in the word of God and all the great exploits they did and the times when Peter walked on water and and, and yet uh, hidden from us all the occasions where Peter failed or stuck his foot in his mouth or cut off the servant's ear when he wasn't supposed to or took his eyes off the Lord and started to sink and the Lord had to rescue him. Uh, but yet the Bible's very honest with us. And same with David, this man who genuinely was a lover of the Lord a man after God's own heart, the only one in the Bible to get that title by the Holy Spirit. And yet David had some real blunders in his life. He was somebody who loved the Lord greatly, uh, but he also made uh, on occasion some great blunders and mistakes in his life as well. And chapter 21 records one of those occasions. What I want to do is let's just kind of read from verse 1 down through verse 7 just to kind of set the context there uh, for kind of what goes on. Again, this is a recounting as well. The parallel account uh, you may remember of this same account is in Second Samuel chapter 24, uh, but it tells us this in verse 1 of First uh, Chronicles 21 here. It says, Now Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. So David said to Joab and to the leaders of the people, go, number Israel from Beersheba to Dan and bring the number of them to me that I may know it. And Joab answered, may the Lord make his people a hundred times more than they are. But my Lord, the king, aren't they not all my Lord's servants? Why then does my Lord require this thing? Why should he be a cause of guilt in Israel? Nevertheless, the king's word prevailed against Joab. Therefore, Joab departed and went throughout all Israel and came to Jerusalem. Joab gave the sum of the number of the people to David, and all Israel had 1,100,000 men who drew the sword, and Judah... 470,000 men who drew the sword. But he did not count Levi and Benjamin among them, for the king's word was abominable to Joab. And God, verse 7, was displeased with this thing, and therefore he struck Israel. So uh, we're going to see in this chapter just uh, you know some real heavy, grievous things come to pass uh, because of this choice that David made here. Certainly there are great lessons for us in regards to spiritual warfare and times when our sinful nature is enticed to do something and some of the warning signals that God tries to send and at times some of the mistakes that we make when we persist and push forward in some sinful activity or decision when God's trying to keep us and restrain us from that. We're going to see that uh, though we can 
confess our sin, that there are still consequences at times, and there are certainly a number of great lessons in this. The thing that's somewhat interesting when you look at the account here of what takes place when David requests this census be taken of the people during this time, and as the result of that, verse 7 clearly tells us that what David here displeased the Lord. And as the result of that, it became an occasion uh, where God struck or judged the nation. God brought judgment against the people of Israel nationally. He didn't just discipline David. Certainly David experienced uh, his own sense of discipline and punishment in this. But this became an occasion where because of what David did as their national leader, that it created a platform where the judgment of God came against the nation as a whole. Now, uh, the account from 2 Samuel chapter 24 uh, tells us something slightly different than verse 1 does here. There it tells us that the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel and he, that's God, Yahweh God, moved David against them to say, go number Israel and Judah. So you kind of have this complexity, one of these places in the word of God where, again, you're trying to wrap our minds around God's sovereignty and spiritual warfare and man's responsibility and how do all these things kind of really coincide together and work. What's clear from the two accounts, and the Holy Spirit gives and records both of them to us, is that you indeed have multiple parties involved in this whole process. And each party has some level of responsibility. You know, we live in a day and age where everybody wants to dismiss responsibility, right? Nobody wants to take responsibility for anything. Well, in the word of God, uh, God's word speaks repetitively about the importance of taking responsibility and that we are responsible, that we're responsible uh, for our actions before God, that God in his sovereignty has no problem taking responsibility for what he does in his sovereign ways, even though we may not be able to fully grasp and understand things with our finite mind, that the devil at times is responsible for spiritual warfare. And in this section here, 2 Samuel 24 says the Lord was angry against Israel for something and that he prompted or allowed this situation to happen. Here in 1 Chronicles 21, it tells us that Satan stood up against Israel, against the nation, and therefore in spiritual opposition, he was the one who moved David or enticed David to number Israel. So you have multiple parties, as I said, involved in this. Uh, apparently something was happening at this time historically where God was displeased with the nation. Uh, there were things that were going on in the nation that were dishonoring and displeasing to God. This was not too long after the time of the rebellion of Absalom. Remember when David's son Absalom led a rebellion and a revolt against the authority of King David? Uh, and certainly that displeased the Lord. There were other things that the nation was participating in. So we know one thing is clear, that this was a time when the Lord was in a posture of displeasure or anger against the nation for things the nation was doing. So therefore, God is responsible in some of what's taking place here. God was, was, if you would, looking for an appropriate righteous occasion to bring about his judgment. And God has the right to bring about righteous judgment when he is displeased with his people and their sinful activity as a nation. So God takes responsibility to some degree to bring about judgment in the midst of this. Uh, 
we also know that the people, the nation as a whole, clearly bear some responsibility because part of the reason this happens is because the people were in guilt. God was displeased with the people. Something they had been doing caused displeasure. And this wasn't just some, again, kind of random haphazard judgment of God that fell upon them. The people in the nation had provoked the judgment of God. And part of what we'll see happening is the result of the people in the nation's sin in a cumulative way coming to a place and reaching a tipping point where then these certain circumstances bring about the occasion where God's judgment is put against them. So the nation is responsible in what we see happening here. Also, thirdly, Satan himself is responsible. That's pretty evident there in verse 1 because it tells us here, the Holy Spirit gives us this insight that Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to to do this, to, to take a census and to number the people. So Satan himself is the one who's enticing David in his sinful nature. Satan is the one who's soliciting David with this temptation, seeking to kind of persuade David to do that which is in in alignment with his sinful nature and to do that which is sinful against God. And all God is doing in the matter is basically God is just removing his hedge of preservation and protection, and God is basically allowing Satan to tempt David in this way. Again, the Bible tells us clearly in other passages, James and other places, that God does not tempt us to sin. So we have to be careful. We don't want to get the impression that that God purposely was tempting David to sin. God does not tempt us to sin. God can't be enticed by evil. But what God can do is God can pull back his hedge of preservation and pull back his hedge of protection over our lives if we're behaving in such a way whereby he allows the devil to have access to us in a way that the devil may not have been previously. And so God, in a sense, pulls back his hedge over David because there's some things in David's heart that are not right and that David needs to to come to terms with in his own sinful nature. And God also isn't pleased with the nation. And so God pulls back his hedge from the national leader and allows this poor decision to be made on behalf. So uh, Satan is directly involved and responsible. He's the one precipitating this sinful decision with his temptation. And David, of course, bears personal guilt as well because he allows himself to be drawn in and enticed by his own sin nature, by the pride in his own heart and his lack of trust in God and his own evil desires lead to the guilt and the responsibility of this. So Satan stands in opposition now against the nation. And again, Satan will do that at times. He'll stand in opposition. There are realms of spiritual warfare at times and spiritual currents that don't just happen in individual lives. There are times when the devil, no doubt, is moving in opposition. And if there's a nation that he genuinely wants to move in opposition against, I can tell you for certain, one thing's never changed. That will always be the nation of Israel. Uh, because the nation of Israel has always been uh, the chosen nation whereby really the epicenter of everything that happens on this planet because God facilitated his plan, his redemptive plan, his eternal plans all through the nation of Israel itself. So Satan stands up in opposition. He persuades or moves David to be enticed in his sin nature to request a census to go number Israel. So David, verse 2, therefore says to Joab, his high-ranking general, and to the leaders of the people, look, I want you to go, his edict as a king now, I want you to go number Israel, take a census. He says from Beersheba, that's down south, to Dan. So he says go from 
all the way in the south, all the way to the north. The idea is go throughout the entire land of Israel and bring the number after you take the count to me that I may know it. Now, you notice here that you almost begin to get the sense and the flavor because you know this is certainly something David was guilty and wrong in doing. We can tell that by Joab's response. We know that because we already read down to verse 7 where it said that God was displeased. And here you begin to see, I think, some of the indications that what David was doing was stemming from his own sinful nature and it was the reason and motive in his heart for the census that became wrong. Again, if you've been tracking with us through our study in the Old Testament, you know there are multiple times throughout the history of the nation of Israel where God has been the one to tell the spiritual leaders, Moses or others, look, I want you to go and number the people. Take a census, take a count. In Exodus chapter 30, God said, take a census. And then it was to collect a half shekel, the temple tax from all the people. So there were times when God would request a numbering of the people. So it's not the numbering of the people in and of itself. That's the wrong action. It's the motive and the reason behind why David wants it done. That I may know it. You begin to get an indication that what David is interested in, in a sense, is being able to reflect upon what he feels he's accomplished to some degree as a national leader. He's someone who's experienced great prosperity since he took his place of rulership. And like some national leaders become, when they're pretty proud of what they've done, they let you know about it, right? And, and so David here, he's done a lot of great things. I mean, God's really prospered the nation under David. That was true. Under his leadership, the nation thrived. They flourished. They were having great victory. They were excelling economically. They were, they were having progress. And, and, and David, maybe at this point in his life, seems to kind of, you know, he's reading his press clippings a little bit. And, and like all of us, you know, when we begin to experience a little momentum and success, I mean, it's, it's difficult for us not to overly rejoice when God starts to do some good things through our life. It's a very difficult thing to resist that temptation, whether it's succeeding in business or in, you know, any area of life. It's tough. It's hard for human beings to manage success. It's very difficult. And David's no different than any one of the rest of us here. And so he says, look, I want to know, go, go get a numbering of the people. And again, it seems here that it's the pride in David's heart that's prompting him to want to do this, that he wants to know the number. He wants to hear the stats. He wants to get a little record so he can kind of, you know, feel perhaps self-assured or maybe rejoice in it a little bit. And uh, some of this as well could as well be sort of a lack of trust in God. Because again, David should have been trusting in the Lord to be his defense. And perhaps what David's wanting to know is, tell me how big my army is. Tell me about all my arsenal, all of my military resources, because in that David would want to feel secure. David's getting older now at this stage in his life. He can't go out and fight battles. And so since he can't go out and fight battles himself, he's maybe close to around 60 years old or so at this point chronologically. Perhaps David, a little bit of his own insecurities, thinking, hey, well, if I can't go out there and I can't be in control, maybe there's a little sense of just tell me how secure we are. Tell me, tell me how big our army is and, and how strong we are militarily. Rather than trusting God to be his defense, he's kind of wanting to trust in his own resources. He's wanting to see how much there is in the, you know, the bank accounts and the military stats and all those kind of things to make himself feel good. And it's a lack of trust in God and more of a reliance upon that which is of the flesh, his own resources and abilities. 
And quite frankly, the bottom line here is, is God didn't direct David to do this. Very different when God's asking for a census and when a person were wanting a census. When God would ask for a census, it was for God's purposes. Uh, and typically, you did not take a census of something that didn't belong to you. So when God would ask for a census or a numbering of the people, God was rightfully entitled to do that because the people belonged to God, right? So he could take a numbering of what belongs to him. But the people didn't belong to David. So really, David had no right saying, hey, can you give me a head count? Because really, those numbers had nothing to do with David. But again, David here makes this mistake kind of again you know allows himself to be enticed and moved in his own pride as a human being and again all of us can be subject to pride it's such a slippery slope in our lives it's one of those areas you know the writer of you know corinthians tells us when you think you stand take heed lest you fall uh, and it is just so easy Again, whether it's in our personal life or our business life or, you know, somebody who's a you know, ministry leader to begin to kind of begin to feel well and secure and enjoy the fact of what are the numbers and tell me the statistics and all these kind of things. And it seems David is longing for that. That's why verse three, notice Joab, who usually didn't have the greatest counsel. Uh, you remember what Joab's like. I mean, Joab's a pretty rough and tumble guy and usually he's pretty carnal. But interestingly enough, the Holy Spirit prompts Joab here to answer David when he gets this request to say to David, David, may the Lord make, and again, notice the language, what I just said a minute ago, may the Lord make his people, not your people, David. Hey, go tell me how many people are in my kingdom. Go tell me what the attendance is. Go and, and Joab says, well, no, 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 David, remember, they're God's people. They may be under your leadership, but they're not your people, David. <laughs> they're God's people. So he says, David, may the Lord make his people a hundred times more than they are. But my Lord, the king, are they not all my Lord's servants? They're, they're going to serve you, David. They're in support of you. Why then does my Lord require this thing? Why should he be a cause, notice, of guilt this is wrong, David. You're guilty here in doing this. Why should he be a cause of guilt in Israel? So take notice, as I said, Joab becomes the voice, if you would, of reason and really the voice of reproof to David to try and caution him before he enters into this sinful activity. David proposes the idea as the king, as the highest ranking leader, and someone who is around him, you know, a, a fellow leader, a fellow associate serving in partnership with him, but under his, you know, high ranking senior leadership says, uh, David, like, no disrespect, but like, why are you doing this? David, I, he's saying, I don't think this is a good idea. I don't think that this is wise. And so he kind of honestly speaks the truth in love and seeks to caution him against what he's doing, that it's wrong and identify it. And he says, look, the Lord can take care of things. The Lord can take care of us. Why are you going to do this? You're, you're going to bring problems into our midst by doing such a thing. You're heading in a direction that's not good, David. Why do you want to do such a thing? That would be wrong. And what is the Lord doing? The Lord's trying to disrupt David's peace to get David to recognize and perhaps kind of retreat a little bit and think to himself, you know, maybe I could be wrong here. Maybe this idea or this desire is being prompted by my flesh and not of the Lord. And, and I'll tell you, 
it never ceases doing anything. God is so faithful. If we are honest in all of our lives, God is so faithful that when we have the thought, the idea, the desire to begin moving in a certain direction at times, it seems to somehow fire a shot across our bow, like a warning shot, or sometimes warning shots, and he'll fire them across our bow, and a lot of times it'll come in this form. It'll come in someone who is close to us. Maybe it's a brother in the Lord. Maybe it's a sister in the Lord. Maybe it's our spouse. Maybe it's just someone who loves us or is in connection to us and has access to us, and they'll say, you know, I I don't know about that. Do you really think you should do that? I don't know if that's a a good idea. I mean, And and they kind of are a word of caution to us. And they kind of try and prompt us and challenge us a little bit. And God uses them to kind of disrupt our peace to get us to sort of recognize, whoa, that's a wrong direction before we just cut the ropes and pull away from the dock and and head out into the sea of guilt and moral failure and sinful activity. And God always tries to do this. And so I encourage you, don't take it personal at times if you have somebody give you a little pushback once in a while. Maintain an attitude of humility. We all have blind spots. We're all prone to pride, to unbelief, to I mean, any kind of weakness of our sinful flesh. And when somebody that knows us, that's close to us, gives a little bit of pushback, look, it, it, nothing hurts to just pause and hit the pause button a minute and just retreat. And let me pray, maybe I ought to pray that through once or twice more. Maybe I ought to rethink that because something in my conscience is being pricked and my peace is being unsettled. And that's how God a lot of times tries to stop us from going outside of his will. As a Christian, we should always be in a relative state of peace. If God's spirit is within you and you are walking in fellowship with God, you should walk in a relative state of ongoing peace. And when your peace is disrupted, that means something's not right. And I'll tell you, this is quite almost kind of somewhat you know semi humorous that takes joab to say this to david joab was like the last guy that you would expect to say something but joab is able to say david this is not a good idea so again the length really that god's going to to try and caution david he's questioning david here but unfortunately verse four the beginning of it this is always sad to read nevertheless god's cautioning God's trying to warn. God's trying to stop one of his servants. Nevertheless, the king's word prevailed against Joab. What that describes there in verse 4 is David persisted in his own desire even though he knew it was wrong. Even though in his conscience something was telling him, you probably shouldn't do this. And I don't doubt that the Holy Spirit wasn't doing his job effectively there because he always does it effectively in my life and he does it in your life too. Right? That's why he's called the spirit of truth. Because when we're about to walk in error, he bears witness to us by, by impressing the truth upon our heart. And no doubt the kind of that conviction is there a little bit, but David, as we all can, he pushes right past the conviction. He just persists and moves forward in the wrongdoing anyway. He just kind of resists what the Holy Spirit is telling him is right, and he just goes forward with his desire. He exercises his free will, and he just walks in transgression and and does it anyway. His word prevails. He's the king. He's the senior leader. He's going to get his say in the end because he has authority. Verse 4 goes on to say, Therefore Joab departed. And went throughout all Israel, as the king asked him, and he came to Jerusalem. The other accounts tell us it took 10 months 
to take this census. So for 10 months, this is all going on. And David, it it takes him 10 months before he finally comes to a place of confession and repentance over this. Again, God was being very patient. 10 months God gave David to do what was right here before he brought down judgment in this situation. So Joab gave the sum of the number of the people to David and all Israel had a million one hundred thousand men who drew the sword. Judah had 470,000 men who drew the sword. Notice verse six, but it says that Joab did not count Levi and Benjamin. Levi was the, the tribe, remember, that couldn't go into military combat anyway. They were the ministers and spiritual servants. Uh, but it seems he just kind of neglected it. Benjamin, notice verse six says, for the king's word was abominable to Joab. In other words, Joab was so disgusted with having to do this and so disagreed with it. At a certain point, he, he just didn't even finish the job. He just came back and he said, this is how many. And he just left off after Levi. He just said, I'm not even counting Benjamin either. He just went back. And the reason why is he was so bothered that he was doing something in submission to the authority of his leader, David, but he completely disagreed with it. And no doubt it was bothering Joab in his own conscience that he didn't really want to do this. Now, let me say this in connection to Joab. Joab, unfortunately here, instead of refusing to participate and letting the consequences be what they may and saying, you know what, David, I love you, I support you, I respect your authority, but you're asking me to do something that I don't agree with. And in fact, David, I think it's guilt and it's wrongdoing before God. So therefore, David, be that as it may, if you want to fire me, cut me loose, give me my letter of resignation, what, what, you know, whatever, I, I can't do that. I'm not participating in something that I know is wrong. Instead of doing that, Joab here engages reluctantly and participates in what's wrong, even though he knows it's wrong. And to me, that's kind of sad there because it says there, Joab cautioned David. He knew it would bring guilt on the nation. Verse six says he gave up on the job early because it was abominable. The idea is it was an abomination. That's how much he was disgusted by it. But though he was disgusted by it and knew it was wrong, he didn't have the backbone to say, you know what? In all due respect, you may be the king, but there is a higher king than you. And because there is a higher king than you, I don't care what kind of authority you have in my life, I will not violate the higher authority in my life just to obey you. And let me just say something. The Bible teaches us respect for authority. The Bible teaches we should respect the authority of our parent, that wives should respect the authority of their husbands, that we should respect the authority of the government and law enforcement. The Bible teaches that, but the Bible also teaches us that there is a higher authority. And if a higher authority, God himself, tells us what's right or wrong, and whether it be a parent, a husband, a government leader, if somebody's asking us to do something that transgresses God's will, the higher king, the higher authority, then the right thing to do in that situation is to disobey. And to say, you know what? I will obey God before men. Remember, that's what Peter said. They told him, stop preaching the gospel. And Peter said, look, we must obey God rather than men. If you want to arrest us or punish us, that's fine. If you want to be displeased with us. But Peter said, my first obedience is to God. And he understood that reality. And so Joab here, together with David in his own way, they become pictures, both Joab and David persisting past his own conscience. They become pictures of the reality that as human beings, we can quench and resist the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives. 
David knew what he was doing was wrong. He persisted past it anyway. And David, in a sense, resisted the spirit and he willfully pursued that which was sinful and of his flesh and and pride. And Joab, unfortunately, in the same way, just, you know, kind of participated in something that he knew was wrong rather than having the courage to stand up and say, you know what, I'm going to honor God and I'll let the chips fall where they may. So verse 7 tells us, because of these things, notice God was displeased with the thing, therefore he struck Israel. So at this point, it's very evident God is displeased with what's going on because there's willful transgression. There's been pride. There's been self-reliance. I mean, there's been the, the attitude of unbelief. David, in some ways, is seeking glory for himself that really belongs to God. And all of those things, pride, unbelief, willful transgression, seeking glory that belongs to God, those things will always bring God's displeasure. And so God here is displeased by these things. And I think David sensed God's displeasure. It took him 10 months, but he clearly sensed God's displeasure. The second Chronicles, or second Samuel 24 account tells us that David's heart condemned him. So like you and I, when we do what we know is wrong, right, you sense God's displeasure in your heart. It's that thing we call guilt. And and we know that. When you've done something, when I've done something that we know is wrong, there's no way of escaping in your conscience, even prior to having the Holy Spirit, right? God is is really faithful to deal with the human conscience. When you have the Holy Spirit, oy vey, forget about it. God will make you miserable because guilt is a strong motivator. And so David senses God's displeasure. He knows what he has done is wrong. And ultimately he comes to his breaking point in verse eight there. It says, so David said to God, I have sinned greatly because I have done this thing. But now I pray, take away the iniquity of your servant for I have done very foolishly. So at this point, David turns to God, his humility comes back to him, if you would. He comes back to a place of humility and brokenness in spirit, and wisely, he turns to God. And in an attitude of confession, he speaks to God. And again, his confession is seen in that verse 8. He says, I have sinned greatly. He says, I have done this thing. I have done very foolishly. See, that's confession. It's taking full ownership of what you've done. It's not making an excuse. It's not justifying it. Well, because of this, or Satan tempted me. I remember early on, somebody gave me a book when I was a brand new Christian, and it said something along the lines, if I can remember the title, it says something like, if Satan made you do it, you blew it. And, and I thought, well, that's good. Like, I don't even need to read the book. I mean, that, and that's how most books I go through. You know, I just look at the title and I go, I'm not a, you know, I don't real good reading retention, but that, that's good, you know, because a lot of times that, oh, well, Satan made me do it. Satan made me do it. Satan made me do it. Look, Satan may have enticed me. He may have baited the hook. He might have, you know, be good at sales and soliciting, but Satan can't force us to do anything. We have a free will as human beings. And so David here in confession, he doesn't say, well, Satan stood up against me. It was opposition. It was spiritual warfare. David just says before God, to whom he knows he's accountable to, he says, Lord, I have sinned greatly. I have done this. And he says, I've acted foolishly. And he just acknowledges it. Just ownership, just complete taking of responsibility. And look, folks, that's what confession is. 
When we confess our sin and our wrongdoing, that's exactly the type of verbiage we should be using. Lord, I did it. I take ownership of it. And it was wrong. And, and interesting, David, a, a few different times, we see him making a confession in the scriptures saying, I've sinned like this unto the Lord. But this is the time, verse 8, where David actually says, I've sinned greatly. Amazing. You would think that he would say that, right, when he committed the sin of adultery with Bathsheba and then murdered Uriah, her husband, and all that catastrophe. But on this occasion, David says, I've sinned greatly. He just sensed something about this. The pride of his own heart had brought him to a place. He says, I've, I've acted foolishly. And he says, Lord... Not only am I confessing my sin, but he says, Lord, I pray, take away the iniquity of your servant. And again, the word iniquity in the Bible, it speaks of, of, of being bent or crooked. We have words like sin, iniquity, transgression. Sin means to miss the mark, which means you can sin without wanting to. The idea is you're trying to hit the mark on a bullseye and you can try and try and try, but eventually you're just going to miss the mark because you're not perfect. So you can sin without wanting to sin transgression is willful disobedience transgression is the line is in the sand and somebody puts the line on the sand and they say do not step over that line and we just say okay and then we just step over it anyway <laughs> just you know blatant just you know disregard and we just we just transgress we just don't care we willfully disobey iniquity is a term that describes to be bent or crooked within and it describes what causes sin and what causes transgression. And so David says, Lord, forgive the iniquity. Lord, I'm so crooked. I'm so bent within towards doing what's wrong. Lord, I'm so perverse. I just, I'm drawn towards being proud and, and doing things that I know that I shouldn't. Lord, he says, forgive me. I've behaved foolishly and, and please forgive me. He confesses and asks for forgiveness and thank goodness David understood the forgiveness of God and you and I, how much more in Jesus? The Bible says if we confess our sins to him, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness because of that finished work that he's accomplished upon the cross. So David here is acknowledging now his sin to the Lord, seeking forgiveness. And the Lord then spoke to Gad, David's seer, another spiritual voice, a prophet like Nathan and others around him saying, go and tell David, verse 10, thus says the Lord, I offer you three things to choose. Choose one of them for yourself that I may do it. So Gad came to David and said to him, thus says the Lord, choose for yourself either three years of famine, that's three years of lack of food and starvation and difficulty among the nation, or three months to be defeated by your foes with the sword of your enemies overtaking you. That is three months where they would have no success militarily, God would take away the barriers of protection and preservation and they would be vulnerable to the greatest degree of their enemies attacking them and overtaking them for three full months. Or, he says, you may pick three days of the sword of the Lord, that is just the direct you know, judgment of the Lord, the plague in the land which the angel of the Lord destroying throughout all your territory in Israel. Now consider what answer I should take back to him who sent me. So, I mean, it's kind of a... Interesting, bizarre account. He, he, God gives him multiple choice. I mean, imagine that. <laughs> you, you do what's wrong and, and God says, okay, look, there's going to have to be a, a, a consequence here. There's going to have to be some level of discipline and punishment for your wrongdoing. So here's multiple choice. What do you pick? Which one would you like? And so God says three, you know, three full years of famine upon the land, 
three months of being defeated horribly by your enemies overtaking you or three days of a plague that the Lord himself will directly bring upon you. Consider and let me know. So verse 13, David said to Gad, here's his answer, I am in great distress. That's what you feel like after you know that you've blown it. You're just distressed because you realize, man, I've just created major problems. He says, however, this is David's wisdom, verse 13, his humility towards God. Please let me fall into the hand of the Lord for his mercies are very great, but do not let me fall into the hand of man. Look at David's answer. David's answer there is he says, you know what? Okay, I know exactly what I want to pick. I don't even need to think, think about it. He says, let me fall into the hands of the Lord. I'll take three days of a plague from the angel of the Lord over the three years of famine and over three months of my enemies attacking me. And David says, because this I know about God. He's righteous. He's just. He will punish because he's, he's a good and a holy and a righteous God and a, a, an honest, faithful father. But he says, I also know this, God is merciful. He's very merciful. And he says, so therefore, because the Lord's mercies are great, even though he is strong and he can be severe in his authority, he says, I also know that he's full of mercy. So let me fall into the hands of the Lord. I trust my judgment and my consequences completely to God. Let God deal with me directly. And it's interesting. David says that in contrast, he says, but don't let me fall into the hand of man. And what does David understand? He understands God is way more merciful and men are ruthless, Right. And truth of the matter be, a lot of times God is more merciful with us than we are with one another as people. It's amazing. Somebody fails and they go to God and God can be so merciful towards them. And by the same token, somebody fails and other people are more severe than God himself. And it's amazing how people can be so much more harsh and cruel and vindictive and revengeful than even God can be. And David understood that. He says, you know what? Don't let people deal out my punishment. Please let God's punishment come upon me because God will be merciful even in the very just punishment that I may deserve for my wrongdoing. So verse 14, the Lord therefore sent a plague upon Israel and 70,000 men of Israel fell. Now, I have that underlined in my Bible, and, and I encourage you, if not by pen, in your mind, underline that because, again, and this is God's mercy, God's restrained version, 70,000 people in the nation died because of the bad choice of that leader. I, I mean, when 9-11 happened, almost 3,000 Americans died, and that seemed like a lot, did it not? 70,000 people. That's a lot of people that died. 70,000 families were missing a loved one. The consequences, the ramifications, the far-reaching effect of the sin of this leader was huge. Was huge. You know, God help us from ever thinking that somehow that sin does not bear incredible consequences because it does. And look, was David forgiven? Yes. David confessed, God forgave David, but that didn't remove the consequences. And that's an important thing to learn and understand. Just because God forgives, we cannot confuse forgiveness with consequences. 
because there are still consequences for things that we do wrong, right? I mean, I can get angry, lose my temper, slug somebody and, and tell God I'm sorry afterwards. But if I break my hand because I got mad and lost my temper and selfishly slugged somebody for the next six or eight weeks, why my hand recovers and is in that cast and hurts and isn't you. That's God's way for the next six or eight weeks of saying to me, I bet you don't ever want to do that again, do you? And for the next six or eight weeks, the consequence becomes the greatest teacher of my life, though God can forgive me instantaneously. As soon as I do it, I go, oh, Lord, I'm so sorry, oh, and please forgive me. And forgiveness instantaneous. But restoration is a process. And so David here, the consequence still lingers, and sadly it reaches just a, a great magnitude. 70,000 people die, and God sent, it says, an angel to Jerusalem to destroy it. And he was destroying, this is a description of what happened in the death, and it says, destroying, the Lord looked and relented of the disaster. Now, this is a description of the mercy of God, of God restraining even in the midst of this plague. The Lord relented of the disaster and said to the angel who was doing the destroying, it is enough. Now restrain your hand, and the angel of the Lord stood by the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. So notice, as the angel of the Lord's bringing this plague, you notice the terms, God himself, even in the midst of judgment, is exercising mercy. It says that the Lord watching the people be judged, the Lord relented. The Lord said, that's enough. I can't take it anymore. And it says the Lord was the one that said, restrain your hands, stop. And it was the Lord who restrained from further judgment. The idea is further judgment could have come, but God restrained it in his mercy. You know, and let us always remember, even, because this helps, even when we're experiencing the consequence, and sometimes then our own heart gets a little torqued and twisted, and we go, but Lord, I said I'm sorry. I said I'm sorry, Lord. Why still the consequence? Let us never, ever, ever, ever forget even the consequence is always the restrained version. It's God's mercy. It could be way worse. It could have been way huger, way more problematic, way more painful. And that really helps to say, Lord, yes, it's difficult bearing the consequence, but I also realize this is the restrained version. And thank you, Lord. Thank you that at least you're giving me the restrained version. And know that that's the heart of God. That way you don't end up becoming embittered towards God in the process wrongly. God here saying, restrain. God said, I've seen enough. He didn't want to see any more harm because God was trying to be merciful. So David lifted his eyes and saw the angel, it says, standing between earth and heaven, having his hand a drawn sword stretched out over Jerusalem. So David and the elders, clothed in sackcloth, fell on their faces. They were terrified as they saw this angel of the Lord standing over the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite there. And David said to God, Was it not I who commanded the people to be numbered? I am the one who has sinned and done evil, but these sheep, what have they done? Let your hand, I pray, O Lord my God, be against me and my father's house, but not against your people, that they should be plagued. Now, there's an indication that David's heart, verse 17, is genuinely repentant before God. Because do you notice all David cares about is taking responsibility for what's happened himself, and he doesn't want to see other people suffer. He says, Lord, I'm the one that did this. Lord, I don't want to see them suffer. The people didn't do this. 
You know, that's how you can really tell when a person's heart has genuinely come to a place of genuine brokenness and confession and repentance. Because they come to a place where they begin to be concerned about other people who got hurt in the process. And that's such a beautiful thing. That's the fruit of repentance there. That David's saying, Lord, the, the people, the poor sheep, he's saying, I don't want to see them suffer, Lord. He says, I'm the one that did this. I, I'm willing to embrace the spanking, he says, Lord, but, but the people, my, my heart's worried for them. Therefore, the angel of the Lord commanded Gad to say to David, verse 18, that he should go and erect an altar to establish a place of blood sacrifice to the Lord on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. Again, a threshing floor was like a flat area where they would sift their grain. So he says, go and establish an altar of sacrifice there to the Lord. So David went up, verse 19, according to the word of Gad, which he had spoken in the name of the Lord. And Ornan saw, or turned, excuse me, and saw the angel and his four sons who were with him hid themselves, but Ornan continued threshing wheat. I mean, this is kind of interesting here. David and his men see the angel, they fall on their face. The four sons of Ornan, they see the angel. They're terrified. They go running. And this man, Ornan, I just picture him like this, maybe just this old godly man. He's just sitting there. Oh, there's another angel. <laughs> he's just still working away. It's like he's so, you know, maybe so familiar with the things of God. Well, there's another angel there. And he's just, just sticking around. Nothing terrifies him. He's just threshing his wheat like an old farmer there. So David came to Ornan and Ornan looked and saw King David and he went over from the threshing floor and bowed down with respect before David as the king with his face to the ground. And David said to Ornan, grant me the place of this threshing floor that I may build an altar on it to the Lord. You shall grant it to me, notice David's heart, at full price. David says, I'm not looking for a handout. I love David's style of leadership. He had authority, but he didn't abuse it. Some people use their authority to get what they want from other people and some leaders are like that they have authority and so they use their authority to get what they want from people that wasn't how david used his authority david said yes i have authority yes i'm the king but he says i i, I want to pay full price this is a business transaction i want to pay you full price he says for for this threshing floor so i can erect an altar to sacrifice to the lord to stop this plague granted to me at full price that the plague may be withdrawn from the people. David understood that it would be blood sacrifice that would turn away the judgment of God. And again, this beautiful picture of what's taking place. And again, this place Ornan, the threshing floor where David does this is actually Mount Moriah where the temple mount ultimately ends up being established. But Ornan said to David, take it to yourself and the king, do whatever's good in your eyes. Look, I also give you the oxen of burnt offering, the threshing implements, the wood and the wheat for the grain offering, I give it all. So he just wants to be gracious and give this to David freely. He's just, you know, look, you're the king. You can have whatever you want. Please, however I can help, take it. But King David insisted, saying, no, but I will surely buy it for the full price, for I will not take what is yours for the Lord, nor offer burnt offerings with that which costs me nothing. Again, there's a true heart of worship. David says, if it's going to be genuine sacrifice, it needs to cost me something. If it's going to be meaningful worship to the Lord, meaningful devotion and sincerity, then he says, I want to have some personal cost involved. David wasn't looking for easy worship. I mean, too many people today, it's, you know, they would gladly take up you know, Ornan's offer there. Hey, convenient worship, sign me up. I mean, I don't have to do anything at all. It doesn't require anything from me. That sounds like my kind of church. You know what I mean? <laughs> hey, if it doesn't require anything from me, no sacrifice, no cost, 
Great, that's just what I'm looking for. Convenient worship of God. David says, no, no, no. That's, David says, I see it the opposite way. I'm not going to offer something to God that doesn't cost me something. He, he says, it's the cost, it's the sacrifice from me personally that shows that God has meaning to me and, and, and that the Lord is worthy of that. So he says, I'm not going to take what's yours and just give it to God like a leftover. He says, I'm not going to offer to the Lord that which costs me nothing. Just again, beautiful principle in the heart of a worshiper here, David. Therefore gave Ornan, verse 25, 600 shekels of gold uh, by weight for the place. And David built there an altar of the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings and called on the name of the Lord. And the Lord, as he told him to, answered him from heaven by fire to indicate God was satisfied and pleased with this offering. So the Lord commanded the angel and he returned his sword to its sheath. In other words, God turns away now his wrath and judgment because of David's obedience. And at that time, when David saw that the Lord had answered him on the threshing floor of Ornan and the Jebusite, he sacrificed there for the tabernacle of the Lord and the altar of burnt offering, which Moses had made in the wilderness, were at that time at the high place in Gibeon. But David could not go before it to inquire of the Lord, for he was afraid of the sword of the angel of the Lord. Look at verse one of chapter 22. We conclude with this. Then David said, because it connects, this... That is that threshing floor of Orion the Jebusite. This is the house of the Lord God, and this is the altar of burnt offering for Israel. In other words, as David purchases this threshing floor of Orion the Jebusite, again, the location he's purchasing there is Mount Moriah, which would ultimately become the Temple Mount. And something in the midst of all of this experience, as David erects an altar there, he causes blood sacrifice to come to pass, which again, the shedding of the blood turns away the judgment of God, the wrath of God from coming down. The plague is stopped. Again, a picture, of course, of what Jesus does. His blood being shed in sacrifice turns away the wrath and judgment of God and the plague of our sin coming against us. But as David does all this in the midst of it, he recognizes and makes a prophetic statement there saying, this is the location that God has always determined for his temple to be built. And he recognizes in this moment, he discerns, God said that he'd choose a place, I believe Deuteronomy 12 and some of the other chapters, God said he picked a place for his name to dwell and his presence to dwell where his temple would be built. And David says, I just figured out where it is. This is it. And interesting enough, this place where Abraham sacrificed Isaac and David has this experience ends up being the very place where the temple was built and then Christ was ultimately sacrificed for our sins upon the cross. What an amazing testimony where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. <laughs> In the midst of all of this madness, God still orchestrates something. The devil tried to make a horrible horrible, destructive mess over and God takes all of that and his mercy and his grace brings about something incredibly beautiful in the midst of all these things. What a wonderful thing. Listen, we may fail greatly, but that does not hinder God in his mercy and faithfulness from still doing great things in your life nonetheless. Let's stand together. Let's pray.